Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 17, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Will Emerging Nonprofit Models Help Sustain Local News? by Joe Gardias. Editor's note, this is the first installment of a two-part series looking at challenges to business models in the media industry and the possibility of more community-funded models. Former journalist Kyle Munson traveled to many of Iowa's 99 counties while working as the Iowa columnist for the Des Moines Register, a role that capped a 24-year career reporting with the Daily Newspaper. In that time, he witnessed the challenges that both the Register and news organizations of all sizes in Iowa and across the country were experiencing as traditional sources of revenue, subscriptions, and advertising were shrinking as technology and culture gravitated toward new digital models while the, quote, mass audience fragmented. Though he now works in corporate communications in Des Moines, Munson helps lead a nonprofit news funding organization, the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, as a new approach for sustainably raising funds to ensure the survival of news organizations in rural Iowa. So-called news deserts aren't an issue of concern solely in rural Iowa or rural America. The demise of local independent news organizations in cities of all sizes has been a simmering crisis for the past couple of decades. Additionally, the ramifications go far beyond the vitality of the news industry, because a decline in independent news organizations represents a danger to the freedom of information necessary for a functioning democracy. It's an issue that's starting to gain the attention of business and community leaders across the United States. And in recent years, various funding models have emerged that dramatically re-envision how communities can support independent, locally-based, factual reporting. The emergence of a variety of nonprofit news organizations or philanthropically funded community news funds and substantial donations flowing into them indicate that community and business leaders across the United States are recognizing that independent, factual reporting of news represents a vital community resource. In 2020, Munson co-founded the foundation with Doug Burns, owner and publisher of the Carroll Times Herald. In early 2021, the foundation received Internal Revenue Service tax-exempt recognition. In its first year of operation, the fledgling nonprofit raised $280,454 in 2021, and as of mid-May, has already exceeded that initial year total. To date, it has granted a total of $135,000 in direct reporting support to the Carroll Times-Herald, the Storm Lake Times, Pilot, and La Prensa, Iowa, a Spanish-language newspaper for Latinos based in Denison. Munson said, It made sense to focus on just a handful of counties where we knew we had concerned stakeholders. We had to start by not biting off more than we could chew. An independent documentary film that was released last year about the Storm Lake Times and its Pulitzer Prize-winning publisher, Art Cullen, 
also helped shine a spotlight and drive donations, as has support from funders like Microsoft Corp., Munson said. Local, independent journalism, both in Iowa and across the United States, is facing a financial and existential crisis, say news industry leaders from around the state. It's equally a matter of concern for community and business leaders because news deserts mean a lack of coverage and the loss of the crucial watchdog role that journalists provide. A March 2021 research report, Healthy Local News Ecosystems, found, quote, consistent evidence that the health of information providers, specifically journalism organizations, and strong relationships among information providers and community members are correlated with engaged residents, community cohesion, and other positive community outcomes, end quote. The research, funded by Democracy Fund, Google News Initiative, and the Knight Foundation, developed a framework of 35 indicators to measure the health of local news and information ecosystems, and applied those measures to nine metro areas across the country. Among the key findings was that, as the number of journalism organizations per capita increases, both community satisfaction and voter turnout in elections increase. In summary, the researchers concluded that, quote, a healthy news and information ecosystem is a virtuous circle whereby improved information contributes to improved community outcomes, end quote. The Western Iowa Journalism Foundation is one example of an emerging trend toward leveraging community philanthropy as a sustaining revenue source for news organizations in the recognition that independent news sources are community assets as vital as schools, hospitals, and libraries. One of the fastest-growing emerging national models of nonprofit-funded news with an Iowa presence is State's Newsroom, which in early 2020 rolled out the Iowa Capital Dispatch as its 14th state capital news organization. It's led by veteran Iowa journalist Kathy Obradovich. Now funding news operations in 25 state capitals, State's Newsroom's goal is to have either a newsroom presence in each state capital or a partnership with an existing nonprofit covering cap state capital news in all 50 states by 2024. As a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donor contributions, State's Newsroom in 2020 raised nearly $10 million in contributions, with a mission of filling gaps in coverage of state government, particularly for smaller news organizations. The content of each news article written by its outlets can be picked up by any news organization at no cost. Chris Fitzsimon, founder of State's Newsroom, said he believes the organization is filling a valuable role in making sure that important stories are being reported. We believe that state government is a level of government that has the most impact on people's lives that they know the least about, he said. And so we're trying to work with other folks in partnerships in any way we can to try to change that. Another nonprofit news funding organization that has formed within the past several years to augment local journalism 
is Report for America, which places young, emerging reporters in newsrooms by paying half of the reporter's salary. Co-founded in 2016 by two former journalists, Charles Sennett and Stephen Waldman, the initiative over the last three years has enabled local newsrooms to generate more than $10 million in local philanthropy to support community news. Through its model, participating local news outlets pay one-fourth of the salary, and a local donor pays the remaining fourth. If the arrangement continues for a second year, the news outlet pays an increased share of the salary. Iowa Public Radio is among more than 200 news organizations that have augmented their staffs with Report for America reporters. Initiatives to establish community news funds have shown promising results in a number of cities. Report for America recently examined the experiences of 10 U.S. cities in which community news funds were established, including in-depth case studies of seven community news fund projects. Those seven initiatives over the last three years have generated more than $15 million in philanthropy for local news organizations. Those metro areas included Traverse City, Michigan, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Fresno, California, Lexington, Kentucky, Seattle, and statewide efforts in Pennsylvania and California. The report strongly recommends that all community foundations consider the creation of community news funds to catalyze local news support. Across these communities, the story is the same. Report for America concluded, when residents are engaged and informed about the news revenue crisis and invited to help solve the problem, funding emerges, new voices participate in local journalism, and newsrooms become a recognized pillar of the community. In January, Report for America announced an initiative with another nonprofit journalism funder, the Local Media Association, to train a group of 20 news organizations around the country on how to catalyze philanthropic innovations in business models. The Meta Journalism Project, a program led by Meta, former, formerly Facebook, is providing funding support for the project. In March, the Gazette in Cedar Rapids was among 20 newspapers selected to participate in the six-month training program. We have watched with great interest as media organizations have developed new funding streams through foundations and other organizations, said Zach Kucharski, the Gazette's executive editor, when the announcement was made. These streams are important as the business models of media organizations shift, he said. We are in the early stages of developing the skill sets and team needed to do that within our organization, and we are excited to have support from coaches and work alongside other teams working towards similar goals, he said. A small group of journalism professionals recently gathered in Des Moines for a panel discussion titled The Future of Journalism. Des Moines Register editor Carol Hunter and Carol Times Herald editor Burns were among several Iowa news organization leaders who discussed emerging funding models during a panel discussion at the annual Des Moines Book Fair. It's not an overstatement, and there is certainly a fear out there that the general interest newspaper, the kind of paper that Doug owns in Carroll, 
the Des Moines Register, could cease to exist at some point in the future, Hunter said. That's the extreme dark side. And if that were to happen, it means that the reporter who has been covering the city council and the school board and the police department wouldn't be there anymore. And it also means that reporters wouldn't be there to cover what I call stories of community cohesion. That's everything from the new business opening down the street to the fundraiser for the community member that was injured in a car accident to the play being staged at the local theater, he said. Digital channels have long been a double-edged sword for the business of journalism, simultaneously dividing and multiplying media channels while also enabling them to increase audience reach. Kathy Obradovich, editor of the Iowa Capital Dispatch, noted, I wouldn't have an audience for online news, and I bet Carol wouldn't either, without Facebook, without Twitter. We spend a lot of time sharing our content online, because if we didn't, no one would ever know that it's out there. Every time a Facebook algorithm changes, we move up and down with how much of an audience we can find, and it's based on something that's not transparent and that we don't know about in advance, she said. She added, I do think that people are starting to develop an appreciation and understanding about how important news coverage is to understanding and to democracy. Laura Bellin, a political journalist whose contributions to Bleeding Heartland, beginning in 2007, progressed from what she called an out-of-control hobby to an out-of-control business. She said the vast majority of her revenue comes from reader contributions. My readers feel a really strong connection to my website, so that's how I'm able to cover costs, she said. Bellin describes her editorial policy as, quote, really solid research-based reporting, but also not shying away from taking a position on the issues, so not pretending to be neutral, end quote. Bellin said she decided early to keep all of her content open on her site. People donate because they want to support the work because they know these are stories that they can't read elsewhere, she said. The thing I'm most pessimistic about is there aren't enough people to cover important news. The majority of the Polk County Board of Supervisors meetings aren't even really getting any coverage unless there's something interesting. I don't have the bandwidth to cover all the stories, she said. With the explosion of di digital media, much of the traditional mass audience that once sustained local journalism, quote, just kind of evaporated, Hunter noted. Some of it's because of just the proliferation of where you can get news. I mean, I find it sublime that I can read the New York Times and its great international reporting. But what's missing is the infrastructure to support that general interest journalism. My fear is that because of the increased polarization of society and increased tribalism, that they're going right to either a progressive or conservative-leaning website where they feel very comfortable, they see and get reinforced on what they believe in, and skip right over some of the objective journalism that a paper like Doug's and mine try to provide each day. Hunter said that diversification efforts toward more events-driven revenue and specialty newsletter subscriptions 
are going to be key to larger news organizations like the Register. Rag Bry was kind of a trailblazer of that nearly 50 years ago. But now we do things like Des Moines Storytellers, the All-Iowa Auto Show, the Iowa Sports Awards, she said. We do 14 newsletters now that go to targeted audiences. We're going to start more of those. You'll find us increasing our presence on Instagram. We need to be able to go wherever the audience is, and it's on all of these different platforms. I think the larger regional papers are starting to find their footing through subscription models, she said. Susan Patterson-Plank, executive director of the Iowa Newspaper Association, said she believes the solution for ensuring continued funding for journalism will be seen through many possible business models. When you listen across this table, what you hear are lots of people doing lots of different things, she said. And I truly believe that's where the solution is. I don't be, have to be 100% in on the nonprofit model any more than I have to be 100% in on the for-profit model. I don't have to be 100% in on being a newspaper. I don't have to be 100% in on being digital. I think that the solution is going to be in lots of places. Community foundations across the United States are increasingly becoming involved in establishing initiatives or grants to support the funding of local journalism. Supporting local journalism in creative ways is one aspect of an initiative developed by Community Foundations Leading Change, CF Leads, which in a 2019 report identified three areas of momentum in which community foundations can take a greater leadership role insisting on racial equity, amplifying community voice, and influencing public policy and systems. According to that research report, titled Going All In, a majority of Americans surveyed said they were not satisfied with the way democracy is working in the United States. The report stated, quote, a lack of trust in major institutions, including the news media, combined with a steady decline in local journalism and an increase in misinformation, is affecting Americans' ability to stay informed about issues impacting their lives, end quote. Among indicators of that, the report cited, only 27% of Americans agree with the statement that elected officials care about ordinary citizens. Half of all Americans have hardly any confidence in the press. And more than a quarter of the country's newspapers have vanished over the past 15 years, along with half of all local journalist jobs. There have been numerous community responses to the need, however. According to the research conducted by Report for America, from 2009 to 2021, Community foundations across the United States contributed $124 million in, quote, journalism, news, and information, end quote, grants to 700 recipient organizations. Community news funds have been established in rural as well as urban communities and have supported both for-profit and non-profit newsrooms, the report noted. 
The business record reached out to the Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines to ask whether community foundations in Iowa have become engaged in any known community news funds. The Greater Des Moines Partnership was also asked to weigh in and assisted by putting out a request to its network of business communications contacts, asking whether businesses have encountered initiatives in Iowa. While no apparent examples of community foundation-based news funds emerged, Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines leaders pointed to the CF Leads report, as well as community news funds supported by community foundations in Philadelphia, Cleveland, and in Arkansas and Delaware. A report for America's summary of efforts cites support by community foundations of journalism funding. Among the examples, in New Haven, Connecticut, the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven is funding a community-focused news organization, the New Haven Independent. Community foundations in Denver, Colorado, and Wichita, Kansas are also funding community journalism nonprofits. Lexington, Kentucky is one of the communities whose journalism philanthropy was profiled by a report for America. The Bluegrass Community Foundation's president and CEO, Lisa Adkins, quote, connected the dots between social justice, vibrant, vibrant communities, and local news, end quote, by regularly attending the Night Media Forum an annual gathering of funders and media leaders seeking to strengthen local news, according to the case study. Since 2019, the Community Foundation there has co-funded a Report for America reporter to cover critical health issues for the local newspaper, The Herald Leader. The Bluegrass Community Foundation also hosts a Fund for Civic Journalism. The first project of the collaboration has been the Our Voices Project that has been appearing since last fall, featuring original commentary by members of the community on the effects of racism in areas including housing, economic opportunity, health care, education, and the justice system. Investing in local journalism is critical if you care about the health and vibrancy of your community. If you are looking to enhance civic literacy and community engagement, Adkins stated, if you care about the quality of local government, local schools, and local public institutions, then investing in local journalism is a simple, cost-effective strategy, she said. Next, the On Leadership column by Susanna DeBaca, President and CEO of Business Publications Corporation. Leading Your Team Through Financial Disruption I recently overheard a young professional bemoaning the, quote, shockingly high 4.5% rate he'd just locked in for his new mortgage. After assuring him that this rate is still very low historically, it struck me that he was probably not alone in his perception an entire generation of emerging leaders has been operating in an environment of low rates, rising markets, and overall economic prosperity. But that environment has changed. For leaders seeking to navigate today's business challenges, helping those unaccustomed to managing organizations through financial disruption will be critical and will require a mindset shift. 
The war in Ukraine is just the latest in a series of disruptions, including the pandemic and various economic and geopolitical crises that have affected the current economic landscape. The consequences of the of the war, ranging from sanctions to commodity and energy shortages, price increases, more supply chain interruptions, and changes in consumer sentiment have further transformed our business climate. The financial disruption we are experiencing and will undoubtedly be facing for some time will affect businesses and consumers in new ways. Just as consumers will need to manage rising rates and inflation, leaders will have to navigate through increased challenges and continued financial disruption. And that will take new ways of working and thinking. In times of disruption, management alone will not suffice. Executives need to provide leadership, says a graphic with a recent Ernst & Young report called The CEO Imperative. Through relentless disruption, how can you stay the course? This report asserts that recurring disruption requires increased resiliency, the ability to deal with rising costs and new or heightened threats, a focus on sustainability and culture, and flexible business models. Leading versus managing will entail problem solving on multiple levels in order to weather economic shocks. Similarly, a recent article in the Harvard Business Review called The Future is Uncertain, Here's How to Ensure Your Team Can Adapt, also underscores the need for a new type of leadership. Authors Keith Ferrazzi and Kian Gohar cite research conducted for their new book, Competing in the New World of Work, which revealed that leaders who achieved the best results through the pandemic did more than react to their changing conditions. The best teams transformed their ways of working through what Ferrazzi and Gohar call radical adaptability. These leaders went beyond mere coping with the crisis and used the pandemic to reevaluate and reinvent their work processes and positioned themselves to manage unpredictable change in the future. What does this mean to you as a leader or director? Thinking and acting differently as a leader can be difficult, but will be essential in order to prepare your teams, especially those for whom this magnitude of financial disruption is new. Here are some ways leaders can lead through financial disruption and position organizations for success. Build resilience at all levels of the organization. While much of the current disruption may be new to your teams, the last two years have provided valuable experience in dealing with change. Draw on past adaptability and success to demonstrate your team's strength and ability to respond quickly to disruption. Provide resources to support your team's wellness and be a role model for healthy behaviors from the top down. Examine and strengthen every area of your business. In times of challenge, every area of the organization must function well for the whole to perform. Audit your entire business with an eye towards rising costs, threats, and risks. Shore up the areas that need attention now to protect against future disruption. 
Invest in people and culture to ensure you have a strong and healthy workforce and workplace that are able to withstand challenges. Prepare for more complex decision-making. Educate your teams on the confluence of considerations needed to make financial decisions in a volatile economic climate. Be ready to take into account not just market forces, but also geopolitical, social, ecological factors, and values considerations. All these influence and affect performance. Provide historical context. For younger leaders or those who have not led through disruption, the plethora and rate of current challenges can seem overwhelming. Educate your teams on historical data and patterns, including interest rates, market behaviors, economic disruption during wartime, and other factors that affect business. Provide examples of difficult economic periods in the past and show how organizations weathered those storms or even found opportunities to grow. And develop agile practices. Consider creating more fluid business models, operational structures, and leadership constructs to ensure maximum flexibility. The more open and accustomed you and your team are to change, the easier it will be to lead through disruption and to position your organization for success. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, June 17, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to the fearless column. What progress has been made on the Child Care Task Force recommendations by Emily Kestel? In 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds created the Child Care Task Force to address Iowa's child care crisis. Its 18 members were tasked with developing comprehensive recommendations that would be used as, quote, a foundation for potential action by the governor, legislature, communities, and employers to reduce both short- and long-term barriers to child care in the state, end quote. The task force produced a list of 15 recommendations. Since the release of those recommendations to the public in November 2021, 10 of them either have been enacted or have at least seen concrete progression. Several others remain in early planning stages. In a statement on May 24th, Reynolds said, Already we've allocated over $500 million to support child care in our state and created more than 9,000 new child care spots in just one year. But we're far from finished, she said. Now that the legislative session has ended, here's a look at what's been done and what's still on the table. What's been accomplished? First, business coordination. Through a partnership with the Iowa Economic Development Authority, create a full-time position for someone who would serve as a navigator to help businesses, employers, advocates, and communities understand solutions to child care found in the Iowa Women's Foundation Business Solutions Toolkit. The Iowa Women's Foundation has hired Sherry Penny, the former Economic Development Director in Mitchell County, 
as its employer engagement director. In her role, Penny will help businesses across the state understand the economic impact of childcare, assess their childcare needs, and understand solutions outlined in the Iowa Women's Foundation Toolkit. Business Slots Establish a tax credit program that would incentivize employers to purchase available openings at a nearby child care center as a benefit to its employees. In May, Reynolds announced the launch of a new Child Care Business Incentive Grant program to encourage employers to offer child care to their employees. The grant program will provide a total of $25 million in state funds from Iowa's share of federal American Rescue Plan Act money to support child care projects across the state. The majority of the funds will be used to support local infrastructure investments to build or expand child care capacity. The remaining $5 million will be used to support arrangements between employers and child care facilities to expand and reserve child care slots. The state will begin accepting applications on June 17th, and applications must be submitted by July 18th. Child Care Challenge Fund Support and continuously review the Child Care Challenge Fund to increase the availability of child care slots. The fund was created in January 2021 to aid in the construction of new child care facilities or the renovation and expansion of existing structures. Reynolds in January announced $36.6 million in grants through the Child Care Challenge Fund. The grants went to 108 programs in 72 communities and were expected to create an additional 5,200 child care spots across the state. For programs that already exist, Iowa was allocated $200 million from the American Rescue Plan to provide stabilization grants to centers and in-home providers to help support personnel, equipment, and rent or mortgage costs. Ratio Requirements Re-examine staffing restrictions and the child-to-staff ratios to determine whether regulatory changes should be made. The legislature passed a bill this session that established new minimum child-to-staff ratios of 1 to 7 for children aged 2 and 1 to 10 for children aged 3. Previously, those guidelines were 1 to 6 and 1 to 8, respectively. The legislature also passed a bill that allowed child care center employees who are 16 to work without being under the direct supervision of an adult. This recommendation was not endorsed by every task force member and remains contentious among many child care providers, lobbyists, and parents. Best Places for Working Parents Implement an initiative that would designate the best place for working parents in the state. Policies reviewed for the designation would include paid health care, paid time off, paid parental leave, on-site child care, child care assistance, backup child care, flexible hours, remote work opportunities, and lactation benefits. 
The Iowa Economic Development Authority announced in January that it would launch a statewide program that would recognize employers with family-friendly policies with this designation. As of June 10th, more than 100 Iowa companies and organizations have been awarded the designation, including Holmes Murphy, Gravitate Coworking, the Greater Des Moines Partnership, the City of Norwalk, Bank Iowa, Collins Aerospace, Fairway Stores, Inc., Bankers Trust, and Dot Dash Meredith. Shared Services. Develop a model that would allow child care providers to access a statewide online partnership platform for support on various business operations like payroll, retirement benefits, and group purchasing for insurance. This is a recommendation that was heavily favored by task force members. Jane Harvey, Division Administrator for Adult, Children, and Family Services at Iowa DHS, said the project is currently being worked on in phases. A document said the project will include the implementation of a child care management system and the provision of technical assistance through financial management consultants. According to the document, a design team made up of child care providers and early childhood experts began working on the project in February and will conclude their work this summer. The child care management system is expected to go live in January 2023, according to a timeline in the document. This will be a very significant contract for the state, Harvey said, adding that it will bring efficiency to the industry. Child care assistance. Provide more flexibility in child care assistance program requirements to help more working families and providers. The legislature this session passed a bill that incentivizes providers to accept more families that receive child care assistance by allowing parents to pay the difference between the child care assistance rates and the rates charged to private pay families. Supporters of the bill said it will allow providers to accept more families who qualify for child care assistance, which reimburses centers only about 50 to 75 percent of the market rate. Opponents said it will only increase child care costs for low-income families. The legislature did not expand child care assistance this past session, a move that many providers are in favor of. Blended Childcare and Education Blend childcare and preschool options, which would expand early learning opportunities. Reynolds in November announced the Iowa Department of Education is making $100,000 in grants available for advancing planning efforts for blended childcare and preschool programs. Schools in Council Bluffs and Waterloo are currently piloting the project. Workforce Education Compensation Continue to support workforce education opportunities while leveraging new ones to help fill the gap for those interested in pursuing the child care profession. With funds from the Iowa Department of Human Services, the Child Care Wages Program will remain in effect through June 30, 2024. Wages provides salary supplements to those who work in child care based on their level of education. 
those with a master's or doctorate degree with at least 24 early childhood credits can earn up to $5,250 a year through wages. The task force also listed 12 just-do-it recommendations, which were defined as, quote, common-sense process initiatives that the state can put in place with relative ease, end quote. At least four of the 12 recommendations have seen action by the state. Harvey said the state is working on ways to ease regulatory burdens on child care providers, which was one of the just-do-it recommendations. She said they're currently analyzing results of a survey that went out to providers that asked about pain points they experience in terms of regulations. One just-do-it recommendation was to re-examine Iowa's quality rating system and consider connecting participation to bonuses. In April, the state rolled out a new quality rating system for child care providers called Iowa Quality for Kids, or IQ4K, replacing the Iowa Quality Rating System. The program is voluntary and gives providers a chance to assess their current level of quality based on five levels. The higher the level a program achieves, the higher the child care assistance reimbursement rate and bonuses will be. Another Just Do It recommendation was to implement a workforce sign-on and retention bonus structure through Iowa DHS to help attract and retain child care workers. In January, Iowa DHS announced it will implement a $30 million recruitment and retention bonus program using American Reinvestment Act dollars. Current child development home providers, licensed child care center staff members, and newly hired employees are eligible for the bonuses, each of which is $1,000. Sign-on bonuses will be available 90 days after the date of hire. Six months after the initial sign-on bonus, and every six months thereafter, those meeting the requirements will be eligible for retention bonuses until the funding runs out. The task force recommended that the state continue to support the Rural Child Care Market Study Grant Program to help communities assess the child care market environment and strategies to address child care challenges. Last year, Reynolds announced $100,000 in new funding for the program. What's still on the table? Business investment credits. Create an Iowa child care investment tax credit program that would make businesses eligible for a 20% refundable tax credit for investing in the construction or acquisition of a nonprofit child care center that would be used by its employees. It would also give businesses a 5% refundable tax credit for the annual cost of providing child care to the employee's children. Property tax parity. Create a subcategory of commercial property for child care centers that would treat them the same as residential in-home care operations. Vacant school rehabilitation. Create a pilot project led by the Iowa Economic Development Authority that would transform vacant school buildings into child care centers. 
Stacy Hupp Ballard, a spokesperson for the Iowa Economic Development Authority, said conversations are still coming together on this recommendation and to look for more on it soon. Sales and use tax exemption. Create a sales and use tax exemption on the building materials used for the construction or expansion of licensed child care centers, which would lower construction costs. Fire and safety code requirements. Create a transparent and consistent policy for fire and safety code requirements in child care settings. While not directly targeting fire and safety codes, Harvey mentioned that there was a bill that worked to reduce local ordinances and regulations if they were stricter than those at the state level, which may apply to this recommendation. Child Care Enrollment Hub Develop a centralized online hub where parents can quickly and easily find information about child care facilities, openings, enrollment, and tours. Harvey said the state is exploring the feasibility of an enrollment hub as part of the child care management system under the shared services recommendation. It's aspirational, and we like it as a concept, she said. What task force members said. Task force chair Emily Schmidt said people continue to talk about the report and request presentations about it and the issue of child care which makes her optimistic. I want communities to continue reading the report and let the task force know what would be most impactful in the next legislative session, she said. Task force member Mary Jansen hopes the issue of childcare will be at the forefront of the next session. It's going to take more than one legislative session to make changes. We have to continue to advocate, she said. And Task Force member Dawn Oliver-Wyand said she's excited by the amount of attention child care got in the legislative session and how the governor made it a priority, although she would have liked to see more concrete action, especially with ways to increase wages and benefits for the workforce. I think we have good steps forward, but to really address it, we need to be thinking bigger and bolder, which is what Reynolds wanted in the first place. Until we look at how we are funding childcare and really step out of the box, we're just making baby steps, she said. Now turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. What to do about guns. Science Magazine debunked a common gun violence myth a couple of weeks ago when it editorialized immediately after the Uvalde, Texas massacre of 19 elementary students and two teachers. Mental health isn't the problem, the magazine said, because other countries with similar mental health issues rarely experience mass shootings. It's access to guns that is the problem, the editorial declared. The 18-year-old gunman had legally purchased two assault rifles days before walking into Robb Elementary School and opening fire. A growing number of business executives are reaching similar conclusions, including come-and-go Chief Executive Tanner Kraus. Guns are easier to buy in this country than beer, cigarettes, or an automobile, 
Krauss wrote in a June 6th Des Moines Register opinion piece in which he explained that a gunman had killed a come-and-go employee in Springfield, Missouri, two years ago. In recent weeks, there has been a flood of gun violence. Victims included two women killed outside an Ames church on June 2nd. More guns is not the answer, Krauss wrote. He's right. No other country has mass shootings like we have in the United States. The United Kingdom is a good example. After a single gunman with an automatic handgun killed 16 students and one teacher at Dunblane Primary School near Stirling, Scotland in 1996, the entire country came together and passed stiff gun laws. Conservative Prime Minister John Majors won passage of a law banning possession of high-caliber handguns, and his successor, Labor Prime Minister Tony Blair, widened the ban. Firearm regulation in the United Kingdom didn't just happen. It has a history that began with the Pistols Act of 1903, which required licenses for gun owners. As a result, today, civilian ownership of virtually all firearms including stun guns and pepper spray weapons, are prohibited in England and Scotland. But the truth is, we don't need to look beyond our own borders to find evidence that firearm restrictions save lives. Our own federal assault weapons ban of 1994 was a 10-year ban on the manufacture for civilian use of certain semi-automatic firearms, as well as large-capacity ammunition magazines. But when it came time to renew the ban in 2004, Congress, burdened with significant gun lobby contributions, refused. They claimed the ban had little impact on gun violence in the United States, which was only partially true because there were so many other legal firearms available for people seeking to do damage. But once the ban was lifted, there was a huge spike in mass shootings. A 2019 study published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery found that, quote, mass shooting fatalities were 70% less likely to occur during the federal ban period than during the 13 years before or 13 years after the ban. But, you ask, how do we fix the problem? We start by changing the culture by hammering away at all of the wrong-minded gun protection laws put in place in recent decades. But what about the Second Amendment, you say? Doesn't the Second Amendment give practically everyone the right to own and carry firearms? According to the U.S. Supreme Court, it does. But it doesn't have to be that way. Here's how Science Magazine answered the Second Amendment question. Quote, A lot of things have changed since 1789, and there are many times when the American people have concluded that rights granted at the nation's founding could not be reconciled with modern conditions and knowledge, end quote. For example, the article noted, quote, It was decided that owning other human beings was not consistent with the founding principles of America, It was decided that prohibiting women from voting was not consistent with representative democracy. 
And now it needs to be decided that unfettered gun ownership by American citizens is not consistent with a flourishing country where people can worship, shop, and be educated without fear. End quote. The alternative, it said, is unthinkable. Quote, a nation of children threatened by gun violence does not have a future. End quote. From the Business Records website, this story, Iowa's unemployment rate drops to 2.7% in May. Iowa's seasonally adjusted unemployment rate fell to 2.7% in May, the fifth straight month the rate has declined, Iowa Workforce Development reported on June 16th. In April, the state's unemployment rate was 3%. And in May 2021, it was 4.5%. According to the release, the number of unemployed Iowans fell to 46,800 in May from 50,900 in April. In addition, the state's labor participation rate grew to 67.6% in May. In April, it was 67.4%. Iowa's seasonally adjusted total non-farm employment in May was 1,565,000, down 500 from April. Among the sectors that saw job losses between April and May were construction, down 2,100 jobs, trade, transportation, and utilities, down 900 jobs, and education and health services down 500 jobs. Sectors that saw job growth included financial activities, up 1,300 jobs, and manufacturing, up 1,000 jobs. The U.S. unemployment rate in May remained steady at 3.6%. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, June 17, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. 